Welcome to the Lancet Global Health Podcasts. My name is Nina Putnis. The topic of our discussion today, universal health coverage, links to two articles in our current issue, which is already available online at the Lancet Global Health Online. These two papers, one an original research paper and two a linked comment, both discuss economic evaluation, costing and health financing for universal health coverage, which is an incredibly important yet also quite challenging topic. Today, we're chatting to Dr. David Watkins, who's lead author of the research paper, which is called Resource Requirements for Essential Universal Health Coverage, a modelling study based on findings from the Disease Control Priorities, third edition. Universal health coverage, or UHC as it's often called, is the concept that all people, no matter where they live or who they are, have access to essential health services at low or no out-of-pocket cost to them. In other words, healthcare should not push people into poverty. This is a global health priority and is often also seen as a global ethical imperative. It forms an important element of the aims of the Sustainable Development Goals, and it's vital to global development in general. However, sadly, we remain far off that. Last year, at least half of the world's population still did not have full coverage of essential health services. And so by this, we mean quality key health services all the way from prevention to treatment, rehab and palliative care. About 100 million people are still being pushed into extreme poverty because of their health care costs. With the COVID-19 pandemic likely to push healthcare even further to its limits, this is only sadly likely to get worse. UHC and essential services need more focus now than ever. One of the barriers of UHC, especially in low and middle income countries, is the costs associated with providing this essential care. Today, we're going to discuss exactly this. The Disease Control Priorities Project, or DCP, mentioned in the title of the paper we're discussing today, is an ongoing effort to identify what sorts of health interventions provide the best value for money in global health. In other words, what's the best use of limited funds? The third edition of the Disease Control Priorities, or DCP series, was published back in 2018, and it included a model list of essential services for UHC in low and middle income countries. In essence, it describes which services are needed where, although in a generic and non-country specific way, given huge variations in context in each country. David Watkins and Al have developed a cost model called the DCPCM, CM for cost model, to discuss the resource requirements to implement these packages. This is a vitally important step on the path to UHC. Dr. David Watkins joins me on the phone to discuss this today. He's the lead author of this paper. He's an assistant professor at the University of Washington. He was also a key contributor to the third edition of the disease control priorities itself. He studies health systems and policy challenges in low and middle income countries, looking for efficient ways to achieve better, more equitable health outcomes by strengthening critical functions such as priority setting. In addition to his academic work, he continues to practice as an internal medicine clinical specialist. 
David, thank you so much for joining us to discuss this today. So to go straight into it, as I've just said, resource requirements and financing for UHC is clearly a crucial element of any discussion on this. Could you perhaps start by briefly giving us your perspective on the importance of this and the background to your paper? Absolutely. Well, it seems to us uh, in the DCP project that the conversation on UHC globally has really been oriented around this idea that there, UHC is sort of everything for everybody. And, and we see that as really not a practical or feasible framing of UHC for very resource-constrained countries. And so in the Disease Control Priorities Project, we promoted what we you might call a disciplined approach to UHC, where we take note of the resource constraints and differences in value for money or cost effectiveness across interventions and really focus on uh, producing recommended list of the most cost effective interventions and making that the sort of core or priority for UHC spending. And so in DCP3, we produced a model list of 218 health sector interventions that form the core of a health benefits package for UHC. And that's what's costed in this paper. So as you said, in this paper, you've estimated costs. Surely these costs vary quite a lot by country and context. And for a huge variety of health interventions, this really seems like quite an impossibly complex task. How did you and your team do this? Which prices did you use for which interventions? Absolutely. It's a hugely complex task. And I think it's important to recognize that we produced what you might call stylized estimates for uh, a variety of uh, for two different income group settings, low and lower middle income countries that are meant to be what you might call highly informative priors for costs that you might find locally. But we didn't set out to produce precise cost for every single country, which would have been a monumental undertaking and also require a lot of work with countries and a lot of uncertainty. So we focused on literature based estimates of cost, unit cost of interventions, and used a variety of algorithms to adjust those costs to different country settings based on the components of those costs. So for instance, drug prices generally are fairly constant around the world, or at least they're, they have a known variability. They're traded on a global market. And so you can roughly extrapolate those costs across countries, whereas labor costs of interventions generally vary in proportion to country income level. And so we can use these known relationships to adjust costs to different settings, again, to provide a rough guess for what cost might be in different countries. Yeah, so overall, this is a modeling study, isn't it? So that means it uses estimated data points like the cost you just explained, and then combined with estimates of level and disease and population statistics to predict outcomes. So in this case, overall resource requirements. How reliable are such models given they're based on broad estimates? And what do they mean in real life? You know, how should they be used? Well, I think it's important to remember the old phrase that all models are wrong and some models are useful. In this case, we in this paper are not claiming to have the truth in terms of uh, precision, uh, in particular, about cost in any given setting, but rather broad strokes of cost across a range of investments needed in different disease areas, different clinical delivery platforms, etc. You know, even the best models can be misleading when they are informed by poor quality data. And so we sought out the best, highest quality cost data we could get. But really, I think our sensitivity analyses underscore the need for better unit cost data in particular for countries, especially as they pivot towards non-communicable diseases and injuries, which are really underrepresented in the costing literature. 
And, you know, since these cost estimates are quite sparse in the literature, our paper provides a starting point for country-specific costing so that countries can use our data as, uh, as, a, as an informed guess at what cost might be, and they can prioritize specific empirical data collection on the basis of the estimates we have by income group in our paper. And one of the principles we have in our cost modeling is transparency, and so that's why an important part of this paper is an online app to visualize and edit all of our cost data. And so if you don't like the assumptions we used or the data inputs we used, you can simply change them and see what happens to the cost of the package overall. So for example, this model might be used in a low-income country national priority setting exercise where you know the country Ministry of Health could look at all 218 recommended interventions, compare those against their current health benefit package. They could drop interventions that are irrelevant, for instance, if they're not in a malaria endemic setting. They could replace inputs or assumptions they believe are, you know, de facto like far off. They could adjust coverage levels of interventions to desired target levels and look at those final estimates of cost by intervention and use those to guide discussions on what they think might be a short list of interventions to consider, particularly those that are not already in their health benefits package. And again, to prioritize primary data collection to get that greater degree of precision in local context. So a really important and, and usable model. And on that real life meaning or the kind of implementation from this, your paper makes some further really important points, especially for low income countries. Could you possibly outline those for us a little bit more? Yes, of course. One thing that we point out and it's been pointed out by a lot of groups before is that, you know, health spending in low income countries is, is really quite low relative not to income, but to what are needed investments to in, ensure a basic sort of level of health care access and quality. There's really no way around the cost of the health sustainable development goals. And, you know, there was a paper in 2017 by Karin Stenberg and colleagues at WHO and the Lancet Global Health as well that made the exact same point using totally different modeling approaches. And they also found the same thing. There's a there's a big financing gap in low-income countries that just simply the goals that we set aspirationally for the world require a lot of cost that you can't just negotiate lower prices into into affordability. And so, you know, for instance, we find that the baseline investment in our package recommended interventions in low-income countries is about three-fourths of total government spending, but that's only about 20 or 30 percent of what's actually needed to achieve the SDG 3.8 on UHC, which is maybe defined as an 80% coverage of a package of very high priority interventions focused on reproductive, maternal, neonatal child health and infectious diseases, but with some NCD and injury interventions too. And so this really, these findings underscore the need for, and this is a message for donors as well as countries, uh, the need for external uh, assistance, for development assistance to really support health systems until macroeconomic conditions improve in a, a lot of countries and, and sufficient, sufficient domestic resources emerge. And, and I might add, this has been made worse by the COVID-19 outbreak, of course, as countries are looking to disinvest in health. And this paper also really underscores the importance of preparing for non-communicable diseases as epidemiologic and demographic transitions accelerate because low-income countries are not immune from this. And not preparing for NCDs by making catalytic investments now will simply make matters worse in 10 years, 20 years, when countries are totally ill-prepared to respond to growing demand for NCD care. And our highest priority package, the subset of essential UHC interventions, 115 interventions, can serve as a template for investing in NCDs in settings where there's very limited resources. So as you've just mentioned, 
you find the implementation for these essential for this essential UHC requires, in the words used in your paper, costly investment. It, of course, doesn't follow that it's not worth this investment. But in addition to this, financing is also only one element of UHC and implementing UHC. Given these barriers, do you or how do you think that we're going to get there? Well, absolutely. I think financing is important, but it's not the sum total of all the barriers to UHC. We mentioned in the paper the importance of political will, uh, political determination to implement and to invest in health. This is a choice that's not made by the global community at a country level, but really by country governments. They can look at health versus other sectors and decide how much to spend. And to some extent, this is within every country's reach to do. And so we argue separately in the Lancet Commission on Investing in Health for greater prioritization of health within government budgets, given the high returns on investment that are seen in health interventions. And so we argue for greater public finance. And of course, for some low-income countries, that has to be supplemented by external assistance. But we actually point out that this package of services we talked about at 80% coverage is is affordable for middle-income countries by 2030. And so most countries can afford to implement the, the recommended interventions that we have put forth. Some countries require assistance and sort of global solidarity to help achieve that. But really, this is an important way of rallying the global community around a focused definition of UHC that really makes good use of limited social and global resources. And we think that this disciplined approach to UHC provides the greatest return on investment at the lowest cost. And again, this is the health sector in comparison to other important social goals like development, you know, climate change, things like that. And so the Copenhagen Consensus, for instance, is a group that looks across different areas of development and looks for high value investments. And they've consistently found health to be one of the most high return sectors within development, even above things like education and infrastructure in many cases. And so we shouldn't shy away from advocating for health as a greater share of government resources in all countries to achieve you know, investments in human capital and, and greater growth in the long term and prosperity in the long term. To squeeze in one final question, thinking just perhaps in the in the in the medium term now, essential UHC in health financing has become now even more important in the context of the current COVID-19 pandemic. How do you think that messages around UHC change or do they, given the current context? Well, yeah, I think there's probably two important points to make. The first, I'll say that we have a really excellent chapter on pandemic preparedness in Volume 9. I think Chapter 17 of Volume 9 of DCP3, I would encourage anyone who's interested to look into that to really frame the issue of pandemics and cost-effectiveness analysis within the context of UHC. But I would say that the main message now in the context of COVID-19 for low and lower middle-income countries in particular is to protect health spending on priority interventions. You know, there's a lot of pressure, as I said earlier, for governments to slash spending, um, given sort of reduced growth prospects in the short to medium term. And really, this puts, we think, we argue strongly, it puts countries seriously off track for reaching SDG3 targets, even important targets like maternal and neonatal mortality, if budgets are slashed for EUHC-like interventions. Again, we recognize some health resources will have to be devoted to COVID and to related issues. Um, but the value of exercises like the ones we've done in DCP3 is to identify what are the core essential services that must absolutely be protected despite any other diversions in health spending. And we think this provides value and sort of normative guidance for countries in times of crisis. 
And what an important point to end on. David, thank you so, so much for joining us and talking about this. Thanks for having me. And listeners, to read more about this topic, do have a look at The Lancet Global Health Online, where this paper by David Watkins et al. and the linked comment by Marley Titchener called Essential UHC Needs Local Capacity is available now open access.